And a special uh, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Uh, I found a story this week I want to share with you as we kick things off. There was a father who was walking down the hallway in his home, and he walked past his youngest son's room, and he noticed something. He noticed that his bed was made, and he knew something was off. So he went into his room, and he's looking at this, you know, made bed, and he, he sees there's a card at the end of the bed, sealed envelope, and it says dad on it. So he picks it up, and he's getting nervous. He opens it up, and his hands start to tremble, and it says, dear dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing to you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and mom. I've been finding real passion with Joan because she's so nice. And I knew you would not approve of her because of all her piercings and tattoos, tight motorcycle clothes, and the fact that she's really, really much older than I am. It's not just her passion, Dad. She really gets me. Joan says we're going to be very happy together. She owns a trailer down by the river, and we share a dream of having many children together. Please don't worry, Dad. I know I'm only 15, but I know how to take care of myself. I'm sure we'll come back to visit you someday so you can meet all your grandchildren. Your son, Chad. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Tommy's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are way worse things in life than the report card you'll find on my desk. <laughs> I love you. Call me when it's safe to come home again. <laughs> Maybe a reminder of why some of us dads get gray hair very early in life. So one day... Like they often did, the Pharisees were plotting on how they could get at Jesus, how they could attack him and discredit him. And so on this particular occasion, they had an expert in the law come and ask him a question, and it was a common question that was kind of bandied around by religious types, so it was very commonly heard. But this so-called religious expert came up to Jesus in Matthew 22 he said, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, to which everyone's ears perked up. Equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of its demands and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. You see, Jesus didn't just name one command. The Jewish people believed there were 613 different commandments that they were to follow every single day. And so the Pharisees figured he would pick one out of the 613 and then they would have their ammunition because he was belittling some of the other commands. But Jesus doesn't play their game. He, he lists two commands, and he says that they're equal. Love God, but not just that, also love people. And he says these are inseparable. They go together. If you are to love God, you have to love others. And if you love others, you are loving God. And it was a revolutionary new ethic 
that really has changed the world. Now, when we hear these words, I don't think they're as earth-shattering today as they were to this first-century audience because we've heard this countless times. Probably many of you have memorized these verses from Scripture. But even though we know these words so well, I think it's a lot harder for us to actually put them into practice. I think the truth is, loving others isn't easy, right? Loving others can sometimes be the hardest thing that we need to do from day to day. Now, this is, of course, true for random people that we meet throughout our day, but it's also true for those that are closest to us, that we spend the most time with. Loving others isn't always easy. You see, to love your neighbor as yourself, it takes selflessness. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose. And that can be so difficult from day to day. And not just for strangers, but even for our kids and our parents, our friends and our coworkers. Now, if I were to take out my phone right now and take a nice panoramic photo of all of you sitting here looking so great today, and if I were to put that picture up on the screen, I know something true about every single person here today. I know exactly where you would look first, right? You would find yourself in that picture and you'd want to see, you know, am I smiling nicely? You know, is our family looking good? How am I blending in with everyone else? And it's a little illustration of how every one of us, deep down, is turned inward. We focus first on ourselves before others. But Jesus, in his command to us, tells us to give others the same attention and the same focus that we often give to ourselves first. He's saying, don't just look out for yourself. Look out for the needs of others. Look out for the well-being of others and not just yourself. Now, I think it's so important for us to get these commands right, to actually live this out from day to day. And it's because of a time Jesus was meeting with his disciples and he told them, he said, people will know that you are my followers. People will know that you are my disciples by the epic Facebook rant you post online. No, that's not what he said, right? He said, people will know you are my followers by how well you criticize others. No, that's not it either. People will know you are my followers by how much you condemn others that aren't like you. Of course not, right? Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples. People will know that you are my followers by how well you love others. That's how people are going to know that you are mine. That's how people are going to know that you have a relationship with me. Love others well. And it's not just that. Jesus also says that this is a great way to gauge whether or not you're growing spiritually. If you want to know how you are doing in your spiritual life, start to ask some of these questions. Am I growing more or less loving? Am I growing more or less patient with others? Am I growing more or less critical towards others? Now, I think the truth is, oftentimes the people who are closest to us, 
can be the hardest to love. It's probably proximity. It's the amount of time we spend with them. Now, maybe you've heard the term before, EGR. It stands for extra grace required. You know some EGRs? Now, it's often said every family has at least one EGR. And if you don't have a person popping into your head right now, you are the EGR in your family, (laughs) right? I think as we start to apply this command that Jesus gives us to love our neighbor as ourself, it's only right that we would start with those closest to us and then start to expand the circles. So as we kick off the series today, we're going to start with those close relationships, and then I hope you come back next week and the week after as we expand our relational circles and see how God wants us to treat each person with love. Now, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament about love comes in the book of 1 John chapter 4, and here's what John writes. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. From the very beginning, From the very start of time, God models a perfect, loving relationship for us. Within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit models that perfect, loving relationship full of giving and sacrifice and love and grace. John sums it up very simply. He says, God is love. God is the origin of love, and all love flows from him. And so the entire Bible becomes the story of God's amazing and unconditional love for his children. I love how John says, this is how God showed his love to us. If you have a Bible you can write in or highlight, I would circle the word showed. Because think of how amazing it is that our God who created everything in the heavens and on earth, who is above all things, who is in charge of all things, who created all things, actually chose to show us in a tangible way how much he loves us. I mean, he could have just decreed it. He could have just spoke it. He could have just commanded it. But no, he went a step further And he actually shows us the extent of his love through Jesus. Jesus came to demonstrate, to model the perfect love that God has. And he makes it possible for us to have a right relationship with God 
because he gave up his life on the cross for you and for me. And when we come to know Jesus, when we have a relationship with him, it doesn't stop there. He teaches us how to treat others with his kind of love. And we're able to radiate his love into this broken world. And then there's that amazing line at the end of the passage where John says, when we love each other and when we love others with his kind of love, it's then that God's love is made complete. There's something missing until we get involved and we are overwhelmed with God's love and we let it then flow out into all of our relationships. That's when it's made complete. Such an uplifting and a positive vision of what this world could be like. Yet, I think when we take an inventory of our relationships, if we're honest with ourselves, we see a whole lot of brokenness and a whole lot of selfishness and a lot of sin. Relationships all too often become a place that people go to get what they want or to try to find their identity or to try to get their own needs met first. So why do our relationships so often not model the loving kind of relationships that God intends for us? Why are our closest relationships even so messy? Well, I'd like to suggest there are three big problems that we need to come to terms with. The first problem is what is love anyway? I mean, what is a good definition of a godly kind of love? I mean, one of the places you can go to try to discern what love is all about is pop songs. Have you ever noticed that? Like, almost every pop song has some take or some definition of what love is. And I think no decade was better at this than the 1980s. I don't know if there's any 80s. Yeah, there you go. And I'll just give you a little rundown. You can sing along in your head. So in 1980, there was a band called Queen, and they sang a crazy little thing called Love. And then Diana Ross and Lionel Richie sang a duet, Endless Love. And then Ario Speedwagon came and they said, keep on loving you. But then Joan Jett came and kind of took a right turn and said, I love rock and roll. And then Tina Turner responded and said, what's love got to do with it? And then Stevie Wonder came and kind of went off the rails and sang about a part-time lover. And then Huey Lewis and the News, they, he, they sang about the power of love. But there was one song from the 80s that gets played the most and maybe is the most telling. It's a song by the band Foreigner. And they just simply say, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to know what love is. I know you can show me. And I think this is an honest thing for every person on earth. We all want to know what love is. And many people spend their entire life chasing after it. But our culture has completely distorted and tried to redefine what love is. I mean, according to movies and music today, love is just a feeling. Love is temporary. Love is disposable. We often see how people use love to justify selfish motives and crazy behavior. 
See, even times people try to use love to manipulate others or even hurt others. But I think using our passage from 1 John chapter 4, we can start to form a biblical foundation for what love is. And the first thing I think we notice in 1 John chapter 4 is that love is giving of yourself. Now, this doesn't mean giving your money or giving your possessions. This is actually giving yourself for others. God gave his son, Jesus, for you. And Jesus gave his life for you. Think about for a moment, if you're walking down the street and you encounter a homeless person, and you dig into your pocket and you find a spare $5 bill and you hand it to that person and then you go on your way. Is that a loving thing to do? Maybe. I think it's probably kind of just a kind thing to do. But imagine if you start to build a relationship with that person and then you don't stop there. You invite them to come to your house, maybe take a shower, get cleaned up. Maybe you feed them some meals. Maybe you help them get connected to a job. Is that a loving thing to do? I think it is. It's giving of yourself to help someone else. But love is not just giving of yourself to gain brownie points or to gain status in the eyes of your friends or the world. Love is giving of yourself for the good of others. It's meeting other people's needs. It's serving a purpose. You see, Jesus didn't come to lay down his life to just show what a good guy he was. Jesus came to lay down his life to pay the penalty for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and receive new life. God didn't send Jesus to just get our attention. He actually came to rescue us. And so if you go help a homeless person to just somehow get over some guilt that you have, or to try to impress others with your generosity, well, that's not really love. Because love isn't about you. It's about doing good for others. So I think we could definitely say a definition for love would be love is giving of yourself for the good of others. But even that falls short. In verse 10, John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Church, the amazing thing about Jesus' love is that he extends it to people who aren't even interested in it. People who want nothing to do with him. People who have turned their backs on him. Just like Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis. As they're in the garden, they try to hide from God. And that's really the story of every single one of us. We try to hide from God and go our own way. But then just like Adam and Eve, they didn't go looking for God. God came looking for them first. And that's true for you and for me. God comes looking for us first. And when he finds us, he lays his life down for us while we were still sinners. Now that is incredible love. So love is giving of yourself for the good of others, even those who are distant or different than us. We don't get to choose who we love. 
And we're not called to only love those who are like us or who agree with us or who don't get under our skin or annoy us. We're called to love every person, no matter how different they are, no matter if they disagree with us, and even if they're actively against us or separated from us. So again, I think the best place to start putting this into action is in our closest relationships, because it's in some of those closest relationships where we accumulate the most wounds and the most hurts and the most baggage. And we need to learn to let those go and to love those people with the same love that Jesus has shown us. Second problem, it's trying to find our identity in the wrong place. I mean, what do we see portrayed in movies and television over and over again? You can imagine Tom Cruise saying this, relationships complete us. Oftentimes people think relationships are a status symbol. Relationships can be used to advance our own agenda, to get our own desires, and then they can be discarded at any time. And so whether it's dating or marriage or having children or picking a friend group, people often use relationships to try to fill a void in their life. And the key word there that's very problematic is use. We're all conditioned to try to use something good and in the process, we turn it into something bad. We turn something good like the relationships that God intends for us and they end up becoming the source of stress and conflict and disappointment. Now, I think this can especially be true in the area of dating and marriage. People often think of their spouse or their significant other as kind of like a pseudo-savior. You know, maybe their entire life, this person is the key to all their dreams. Two and a half kids, white picket fence, living in the suburbs, everything's gonna be great. The problem is when we buy into this idea, it's hard to not be disappointed down the line. Because no matter how you look at it, every relationship is two sinful people coming together. And as much as we wish it would work this way, two sinful people to coming together is not a double negative. Like they don't cancel each other out and make something holy. No, it actually makes something twice as sinful, right? There's that much more potential for conflict and for hurt. Now, what do people often say when they meet someone they fall in love with? They say, I met the one. Well, the truth is to truly be fulfilled in life, you do need to meet the one. But that one is Jesus himself. Your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your coworkers, they all come afterward. In Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added unto you. Make sure you get the order right. Work on your relationship with Jesus first. He's the one and then let your other relationships flow after that. Now, this doesn't guarantee smooth sailing. doesn't guarantee that everything's going to be great at all times. But what it does guarantee is that you will have a solid foundation the next verse, after Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God, he also says you don't need to worry and you don't need to be anxious. And it's simply because God will take care of us and he'll give us what we truly need 
He'll give us all the tools that are needed to have a happy, healthy relationship. Forgiveness and grace and new life. Put Jesus first. And then from that secure foundation, find ways to give of yourself for other people. One more problem, and that is this. Lasting, loving relationships don't happen by accident. Lasting, loving relationships always happen on purpose. It's kind of like if you're going on a summer vacation, you typically want to have the destination in mind so you get to where you're going, right? Well, the same thing is true for our relationships. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 4, starting with verse 25, it says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. If you want to have positive, life-giving friendships, if you want to be associated with people that build you up and point you towards Jesus, it happens on purpose. If you want to be married and faithful to your spouse for 50, 60 plus years, it doesn't happen by accident. I've done close to 100 weddings in my ministry, and I've yet to sit down with a couple who says, you know, in three to five years, we really hope we can't stand the sight of each other. I've never had a couple say, you know, in 10 years, a romantic evening for us, we just hope it's sitting on opposite ends of the couch watching the same movie for, for the 20th time. My grandfather was a pastor, and he loved to tell a story at weddings. He said, if you go into a restaurant and you see a couple sitting at a table and kind of leaned over towards each other, staring into each other's eyes, speaking words of love to each other, what do you think of? Not married. He said, <laughs> said if you go to that same restaurant and you see another couple and they're turned away from each other, they're not even looking at each other or speaking, he said, what do you think of? 40th wedding anniversary. None of us set out to be like that second couple. But great marriages never happen by accident. Way too many people think they can capitalize on the momentum from the past to propel them into the future. But instead, we need to be more intentional about that. What are you doing today at this moment to ensure that your relationship and your love stay strong? It might mean apologizing for ways that you've fallen short. It might be dreaming together about what God intends for this future to look like. But again, great relationships, great marriages, great friendships, they never happen on accident. They always happen on purpose. It's people dedicating, dedicated to doing whatever it takes to make it work. It's not taking the easy way out. It's not buying into the false expectations of this world. And the same is true for all of our other close relationships with our kids, with our parents. Be intentional. Be prayerful. Be thoughtful. Find ways to serve and to give of yourself and to invest in others. Don't let selfishness, don't let grudges, don't let little hurts Get a foothold in your relationships. So let's be a church that's always seeking to love. 
by giving of ourselves for the sake of others, even those who are the most distant or the most different from us. And to do that, let's make sure that our identity and our foundation is always found in Jesus first because he shows us what love truly looks like. And then let's be intentional and let's be purposeful in building loving and healthy relationships, starting with those who are closest to us and then expanding outward. Remember, Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples. People will know that you are my followers by how well you love others. Will you pray?